is a war against evil. This is clearly a case of good versus evil, and make no mistake about it, good will prevail. Welcome, welcome, and welcome back to the Political Baby Podcast, brought to you by yours truly, Maru, aka Political Baby, aka The Revolutionary Shorty. Now, you already know why you're here. We're here to make academia sexy. Now, thank you to all my political babies for reaching out to me. I took a short break, but we're back and better with episode five titled Dreams and Nightmares. Now, I have a heavyweight champion stepping into this ring today. He recently graduated from the University of Cambridge. He is a podcaster. He is secured in his corporate bag. He is a future trainee solicitor at a top US law firm. He gives Harvey Specter a run for his money. He's a flag bearer for all things social mobility. I'm super excited. So please join me and welcome Mars. As a heavyweight champ, you get me all blushing. But yeah, no, um, so I've just graduated from Trinity College Law, um, doing my LPC, going into that corporate law job soon. But yeah, no, I'm big on social mobility, which is what led me to run the Modern Renaissance Men podcast. Um, link of which I have in my bio. <laughs> That's the plug. But yeah, no, thank you so much for having me. I think it's a it's a dope idea. This conversational structure, and especially with your personality, you drive it really well. <laughs> thank you, Mars. Now today's title, like I've said, is Dreams and Nightmares, which is inspired by Meek Mill's song. Shout out to Meek Mill, and we're dividing this episode into two parts dreams which would be the social mobility success and how that pertains to the capitalist society then we have the nightmares aspect where you know we'll be talking about 9-11 the war on terror and just general human suffering that has resulted from the u.s intervention as well as islamophobia so sit tight because we're in for a ride Firstly, a bit of a small trigger warning. There will be discussions of violence and terrorism, which may be distressing to some. Listeners' discretion is advised. However, this conversation is intended to be as lighthearted as possible. Now, the topic of terrorism is not foreign, especially growing up in Nigeria. You know, it means reading headlines about the Boko Haram insurgency slapped across newspapers. You know, albeit the abduction of Chibok girls one day, or the kidnapping of Dakchi school children the next. This phenomenon of terrorism is not isolated to one region. In fact, England is no stranger at all. With the July 2005 attacks, where three out of the four bombs went off in tube trains across London. I'm sure you're wondering, okay, Mara, why are we talking about this? And that's because last week marked 19 years since 9-11 you know, where there were four coordinated attacks, two of which crashed into the World Trade Center, another one into the Pentagon, and another one which went haywire. And this was defined as a war on America. But in my opinion, there is a more of a global impact. In fact, this event is described as the event that changed everything. So I want to ask you, what do you think it changed? 
the the unique thing that I can present is obviously someone with with that Muslim identity myself being in the UK. The thing that you experience, the way that you feel portrayed in the media, and at the same time, someone who wasn't born in this country, and the alternative perspective that you have from an international perspective, being from mm-hmm. the kind of area in the world which is affected by those things, being roped into U.S. military intervention, as my country, Pakistan, right? So. Uh, in light of that, you know, I, I think firstly the personal perspective. Obviously, the key logistical changes we've all experienced is all of the NSA, the safety stuff that you get when you're going uh, onto an airplane. On top of that, all of the privacy violations, right? Mm-hmm. But in terms of the more personal, sort of racially charged experiences, right? I, it's just I feel it's kind of like an ignorance towards the experiences and attitudes of people who are themselves Muslims, refugees, or from, from a myriad of backgrounds in, in, in the UK or in the West in general, and, and the way that they feel sort of vilified, antagonized. For some. With regard to that, people don't often see that, you know, the biggest victims of US intervention was Iraqi civilians with the, with the Iraq war, US invasion of Iraq. Now, the US has admitted to something like 40,000 civilian deaths. The UN estimates that to be 200,000. And the Iraqi government stated that figure to be well over a million, right? Living in the UK, living. the way that you really see that is in the, the breakup of people. And everyone has a story. Everyone has cousins back at home who live in poverty, who have experienced some form of brutality, who are victims of war, who are lucky to escape. Like the communities that you really live in can give you that sort of perspective. And you can you can you can see that, you know, whilst we may be antagonized in, in the media, etc. I, I dare I say it, we're equally, if not, there have been more casualties on that side and we've equally felt the brunt of it. Mm. I really like the fact that you're bringing your own unique perspective as a British citizen with a Muslim identity. After 9-11, there were concerns of a rise in Islamophobia. So Islamophobia obviously is a prejudice against people who are Muslim or their background. In fact, Tony Blair, then Prime Minister, made amends to the Public Order Act to make provisions for incitements of religious hatred. <laughs> And that's such a far cry from what we are seeing now with Boris Johnson, this current prime minister who called Muslim women in burqas, you know, letterboxes. So my question to you is, what do you think the role of the government is or rather should be when it comes to hedging against prejudice and Islamophobia? Other than uh, having a causative effect, I think what it can rather do is bring to light some of the ugly views that people already have, the way that Trump supporters describe themselves often is the silent major- the silent majority, right? Mm-hmm. So we didn't know about, well, for us specifically, you know, yourself and I, we are university students. Universities are typically very left-leaning, liberal, etc. <laughs> and you're very insulated from what turned out to be the majority of the country's views. You know, being a student uh, in sixth form in 2016, I'm thinking, yeah, the EU is a great thing. Uh, you know, free travel, this, that, and the other, economy, whatever. Little did anyone know, least of all David Cameron, who put things into motion with the referendum, okay. that there was such, you know, anti-EU, Eurosceptic uh, sentiments among the wider public. And obviously, they, on the narrow majority, they, they won the referendum back in uh, 2016. I, I think that politi- politicians, you know, they have, they have a moral responsibility, definitely. 
but it's more a role of censure in that you state what is an acceptable and what is an unacceptable view. Now, there has been a lot of controversy over the term radical Islam. Now, I'm going to play a clip to take a listen and we'll talk about it. The side of the aisle have made in the fight against ISIL is to criticize this administration and me for not using the phrase radical Islam. What exactly would using this label accomplish? I really liked what you said about the government and their politics being an echo chamber of public opinion. Speaking of public discourse, post 9-11, there was a lot of negatively charged language when discussing Islam. It almost seemed that terrorism and Islam were being made synonymous. However, it kind of evolved where it was no longer the case where the conversation was about all Muslims are terrorists. In fact, it now revolved around this idea that there are radical Muslims and non-radical Muslims. So there was this politicization of Islam in itself. Some years ago, John Rees, the national officer for the Stop the War Coalition, called Tony Blair out for using the term radical Islam. Now, Mamdani wrote a book titled Good Muslim, Bad Muslim. And the premise of that is that there's some what of a dichotomy between acceptable Islam and unacceptable Islam. So my questions are, number one, is this nuanced enough? Number two, what are we getting wrong or maybe right about this discussion? You've, you've hit the nail on the head there with the, with the word nuance. There, there is no nuance when you talk about good Muslim, bad Muslim, because clearly there is you know, a, an ignorance to what the realities are. So I, I don't know if you, if you know of Tiwa, but a, a theology student recently graduated from Cambridge, uh, insightful discussion with her about women's rights in Islam, right? Mm-hmm. The ease of with, with which divorce is available and has been available for 1400 years, right? Yeah. That, that sort of thing, the, the, these, these sort of false perceptions that we have, let's, and I'm just bringing up the, the topic of, of women's rights because I think it's a fairly potent one and it ties everything together. So it was one thing that everyone condemned the Taliban for. Mm-hmm. It was their abuses of women's rights. It's one of the biggest things that they did alongside ethnic cleansing. Now, for them, uh, some of the laws included the fact that it was illegal for a woman to go outside without her mahram, without a sort of chaperone, uh, uh, you know, a husband, father, brother. But it couldn't be more opposite, right? Mm-hmm. So, for example, we, we, we have... Uh, Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, the person who's meant to be an example to, to all Muslims. His first wife was his employer. She was many years the senior of him. She was a successful businesswoman, right? That's one aspect of it. Next aspect, the first university in the world, still surviving to this day, was founded in Morocco by a Muslim woman. 300 years before Oxford and Cambridge came through, and the reason I bring this up is that that is often conflated with Islam. Uh, women's rights and divorce and so on. These, these are just something which is completely juxtaposed by what we see in the Taliban. So you can't even describe them as Muslim. You can only describe them as the sort of product of years of foreign intervention, instability and radicalization, right? When who armed the Taliban initially, who, who trained them up, who pumped their ideological views more than 
a coalition of the US and Pakistan. Uh, so that's just one example. And I think it just kind of shows that you can't conflate the two. There are two, there are over 2 billion Muslims across the world. And I know it's the, it's, it's the cliche that everyone always said, that if they're all terrorists, you know, you wouldn't stand a chance, frankly. But it's, it's the idea that, you know, it's, you, you need someone to antagonize and it's, it's someone that's very easy to antagonize. And especially, you know, post-colonialism, post all this Western intervention, when you have destabilized these nations to that extent, it's very easy to now point fingers at them and call them savage and so on. But really, these are conditions which have been created over many years. It's all about, you know, recognizing the pure form of the ideology, which a lot of people adhere to. And you can really see that throughout history versus these recent political conditions and all of this military intervention which has bred instability if you're going to look at this what you really need to do is separate the ideology and you need to look at what the direct causes of this sort of conflict because it's not the ideology that was very sound you spoke about the destabilization in these countries due to such intervention now after 9-11 the american government launched this global war on terror to fight terrorism which the british government joined them with in fact, where many of us are aware of the 2003 invasion of Iraq, which shadowed Tony Blair's government. And when people talk about this decision and just the foreign policy of war on terror, they tend to talk about the politics and the economics of it. They remove the civilians involved from any form of humanity. As of two years ago, reports stated that more than half a million people were killed due to this Western intervention, and 37 million people were forced to flee their home. So I would like us to take our time to talk about the humanity, or rather the inhumanity of it all, to put names and faces to them, rather than them being stats and figures. The numbers really speak for themselves. The number of casualties, the number of refugees, the number of people who are displaced internally and internationally. It just really speaks volumes. I don't think there's, there's, there's any way to justify those numbers. Now, should, should there be intervention? Perhaps. Should it take the form it's currently taking? Probably not. That's the only thing that can, that can really be said. And I, and I don't think that a lot of people are able to value the human life on the other side enough. Mm. Like you said, these ideas of collateral damage, that sort of syntax, it really dehumanizes people. You, you lose the idea on these on these stories, and I, I can guarantee you, no one like something you know that was a little bit uh, facetious that I read. <laughs> no, no one's no one's coming over risking their life on a dinky boat to come around here for your minimum wage job and exactly. bread pasties, right? <laughs> <laughs> people, you've got to recognise that people are coming through and risking their lives, yeah. and you can't truly understand and appreciate that until you realise the humanity on both sides, the collateral damage as it's described. And I just really think that that's something which is poorly, uh, poorly reflected generally in Western media and Western society. We spoke a lot about human suffering and just linking it with our current movement. In episode three that I recorded with Claire, she said that we have our, our phones and social media to capture what traditional media does not, which is very important but then there's all this real-life violent imagery made accessible through social media. For example, with George Floyd, I had to deactivate 
on my social media for weeks because it was heartbreaking to the point that I felt numb. I started to chastise myself like, Mara, you should be talking about this every day. You should be on the online battlefields, virtually fighting against structural racism. I started to question myself. Am I being complicit? Is this apathy? Or am I being desensitized by the overload of so much brutality on the internet? So my question to you is, is there a thin line? And if so, where should we draw the line? It's difficult to mm-hmm. care about something when there's a crisis going on every single day. Yeah, exactly. You have access to a world of worlds, mm-hmm. you know, the wealth of the world's news mm-hmm. uh, in, at your fingertips. And you're constantly bombarded with this information. You have the shortest attention span. You're like, cool, that's about, uh, right, I just saw a post about uh, Uyghur Muslims in, in China. Cool. Yeah. yeah. Internment camps next. Yep. Uh, there's uh, been another terror attack. Cool. Uh, keep scrolling you have no attention span for these things anymore. And we've been conditioned to that. And it's, 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 it's just difficult. And on the other hand, you have people who get very, you know, worked up about these things. And especially, you know, right now in the lockdown, mental health is, is, is a big issue, domestic violence, mental health, suicide rates, etc. And these things aren't helping, mm. but there are a lot of people for whom what you're reading is a reality. So I think it is, if not a duty to be informed about everything that's going on, you know, that's not logistically possible, but a duty to recognize the humanity on both sides. Versus from a political uh, sort of philosophical perspective, right? Apathy and complicity. Mm-hmm. In the UK, we don't have, pos- uh, we don't have like positive uh, legal obligations in criminal law. So you can't commit a murder by omission. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Unlike other legal systems where you have an obligation if you see someone drowning to jump out and do all you can to help them. Yeah. In the UK, you could walk past. And that is where I'm going to highlight the inconsistency in that that logic does not feed through to complicity and apathy. And we are definitely conflating the two. And it's, it's, it's almost a bit rich to constantly be telling people you should be condemning this, that, okay. and the other. When... In reality, a lot of the people aren't here by choice, who are equally victims of the war on terror, of terrorism, who want safety and security, and that's why they're in this country. So it's very rich to be, you know, accusing such people of of complicity. When in reality, a lot of people, myself included, for example, we are desensitized. It's <laughs> some mm-hmm. some might say that it's nine eleven every day somewhere in the Middle East. Mm. Now that would be a stretch considering recent, uh, you know, recently there's been a bit more stability. Difficult for you to firstly conflate people who are actually victims of the same thing as being complicit. And with that said, we'll be going on a short break. And in the second segment, we'll be talking about dreams, social mobility and success in a capitalist society. So stay tuned. Welcome back. This is segment two. We'll be talking about all things social mobility and success. Over the course of quarantine, just staying at home, it gave me time to reflect. At university, there's almost a tunnel vision of what success looks like, i.e. the free dinners with graduate recruiters, the nice starting salary packages, offices near Canary Wharf. And this explains why the corporate people and the LinkedIn merchants on Twitter are called shiny suit Twitter because of how they pander to this 
idea of success in a strict corporate lens. Now, on your podcast, Modern Renaissance Men Podcast, you interview extremely high-achieving people. So it's only right that I ask you, how do you define success? The reason that I know you're talking about what you refer to as a shiny suit Twitter, the reason that that's what a lot of people define as success is that education is often the key out of a bad situation. It's, it's the biggest currency to pay your way out of a lower socioeconomic background. Mm. It can be the great leveler. That's why there was such an outcry over the A-level results. There were so many kids, right, who've worked hard, but they are at bad schools. They live in a bad postcode who were disadvantaged by it. And eventually, you know, the government got it right. And they, you know, that's the reason that people are so impassioned about it is that education is the currency. It's the key out of a bad uh, situation. Uh, Frankly, you know, all, all I had was education. I went to an elite free school. I was able to get, you know, uh, an academic record, which was near enough perfect, still, still, uh, still vexed about that A in GCSE history. But you know, fourteen A stars, GCSE one A, got them, got them four A stars. I averaging like ninety eight, ninety nine across my A levels, that sort of thing. That's all I had. That's why I put everything into it. Mm. Now, the reason when you get to uni is that you realise it doesn't so much matter so much matter whether you get a two one or a first, it's that uni institution, the education you receive, the branding. So what is the next stage out of there is the job you get. And we have the corporate conveyor belt and you see a lot of people going out for the wrong reasons perhaps, right? And they're attracted to these jobs and maybe that's why there's such a high rate of attrition in them. But the, equally there are a lot of people who find the work interesting and go into it that way. But I, I just think it's the necessary next step is that people why you see a lot of people that you were describing as very active LinkedIn warriors and so on is because a lot is riding onto it, especially, you know, from ethnic minorities, lower socioeconomic backgrounds. I found what you said about education being this leveler very interesting. And I would like to touch on that. In fact, my friend Daniela wrote an article for The Guardian and I'll read an excerpt from it. She says, I've learned that our class shapes our economic, cultural, and social capital, and much of our potential from birth. This is something a degree cannot erase. Now, Deloitte states that 7% of children in the UK attend elite independent schools. 30% of all A-star grades at A-level are achieved by these children. Then they follow on with this quote. This means that people born into low-income families, regardless of their talent or their hard work, do not have the same access to opportunities as those born into more privileged circumstances. Now, this is very interesting because the entire USP of capitalism is that it ignores any form of structural inequalities. It states that as long as you work hard, you would succeed. It prides itself on being a true meritocracy. And I think this brings the capitalist model under question. I mean, what are your thoughts? Actually, I was reading or rather listening to the audiobook of Sapiens by uh, Noah Yuval Harari. So it's a fairly mm-hmm. famous book. I don't know if you've, if you've looked into it. All of these concepts that we live by, capitalism just being a concept. Now, I think that what I said earlier is that the passport to success is education, especially if you're from a lower socioeconomic background. That is true. But that is only true if you have a certain amount of talent, resolve, where you have parents who are willing to really push you through it. Now, that's what I was lucky enough to have was, you know, absolutely military academic standards (laughs) at home. That is definitely an advantage to that. 
I had. Most people, they don't, they don't win the genetic lottery to have a high IQ. IQ being, you know, arbitrary in itself. It measures seven different quotients of intelligence. Um, most people don't enjoy that sort of uh, uh, privilege, right? They're, they're not born being talented at academic work. Even more so, they don't have parents who are educated who can emphasize the importance of education or tutor them through it. For that, we are genetically coded to want as much as possible, right? Now, in terms of capitalism, it really feeds into that. It really taps into that primal desire to want more. And it is facilitated by, you know, the light touch approach uh, as contrasted to, you know, socialism. Uh, Noah Yuval Harari highlights is that it is a myth because when we look at the statistics, it's not hard work that makes you rich, that makes you want more, right? Uh, well, makes you able to get the more that you more. want. Yeah. Right? It's, it's, it's not hard work. The majority of it, to be wealthy is that you have to be born into a wealthy family. Now, there are exceptions. Uh, I know a lot of talented guys from low socioeconomic backgrounds, but again, they had certain advantages too. They, had, they were born with a, a decent IQ. They ended up getting into a good institution or they had parents who pushed them through, who sacrificed everything so that they could get tutored. They could have that early development in education. Their intellectual curiosity could be built from a young age, which they could carry forward. They knew how the academic game worked. They had parents who could read over their essays, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Like, frankly, people don't even understand how big an advantage you can have to have parents who are fluent in uh, English. Yeah. Let alone the help with schoolwork. Mm. You're not additionally burdened by uh, reading through government documents from a young age. (laughs) So that sort of thing just really highlights that to what extent is education really a passport to success and to what extent are are we doomed? And I think the only real conclusion that we come through uh, that can come through from it is that capitalism is not a true meritocracy. That's a very nuanced answer, but obviously that does come with a lot of critique. As you know, people may hold up certain minorities to discredit claims of such inequalities. They may even cite the fact that British people with Pakistani and Indian heritage have home ownership rates in the UK of 65% and 69%, rivaling that of white British people you know, in comparison to 20% of Black Africans. So certain racial and ethnic groups are tokenized to discredit any forms of racism. They may say that, you know, these ethnic minorities are doing well, so what's your excuse? In fact, this actually has a term. It's called model minority. And the idea behind it is that there are some cultural values of some racial minority groups that are more conducive to successful integration. Their identity as good citizens is relational to other ethnic groups. So you have this divide between good and bad citizens simply based on race and culture. What do you have to say about that? Many mm-hmm. people of, of, of uh, uh, Indian heritage, you have Rishi Sunak, Preeti Patel, etc. Now, I think what we discussed about earlier about migration, being refugees, etc. That comes into play here because you can't describe one minority as a model minority mm-hmm. when they do not have the same experiences. Different people experience racism in different ways. Now, the circumstances in which they come to this country, the level of education with which they came to this country and the level of prosperity, that sort of thing. But to be very honest with you, it, a lot of it is just stereotypes because 
And uh, I was looking at surveys actually last year when studying uh, criminology at Cambridge, right? Uh, the, the criminology module in law. And we were looking at minorities and different uh, cultural and social indicators as to what could suggest that certain people are either more likely to commit crime or more likely to be viewed as criminals. And the fact is that uh, African kids are some of the best performing uh, at GCSE level. Yeah. Uh, kids yeah. of Caribbean heritage <laughs> still perform better than, I believe, uh, the average uh, white student at GCSE level. Yeah. But they're also more likely to be suspended and excluded. It's the idea of these stereotypes being self-perpetuating, the different way that you view and punish different things. Now, if we contrast that to uh, people who are of a, a background which is a persecuted minority and they came to this country as asylum seekers, refugees, or they came just to escape the poor economic conditions of their own country, it just shows the, the multiplicity of factors, the lack of homogeneity in this entire group that we're talking about when we put under the BAME umbrella, which is why it's just an absolute myth to suggest that there is a model minority. There is just certain circumstances which are more likely to breed success. Perhaps the culture fits into it, but frankly, you can't talk about who would win the race when a lot of people aren't even getting to start. They don't even have starting blocks or shoes. Period. Exactly. So a lot of people don't even have these opportunities to gain that education, to break out of the mold. One thing that's so great about Mars is how he mentors a lot of young people, either personally or through his podcast. We have established that in this capitalist system, it's very individualistic. So what coordinated approach can we take to redress structural inequalities? The best way that I can think of is providing role models, providing the exceptions who have worked exceptionally hard to guide other people so that they have the knowledge to liberate themselves from their socioeconomic shackles. But at the same time, there's now what I wanted to say about the second way of answering this question is the philosophical aspect to it, whether we should have positive discrimination or not, how we should tackle these things in the short term rather than the Mm. long term. So from from my experiences, you know, there are exceptional people who are, crazy motivated and enthusiastic and able to self-start themselves to re- research these things and go into all of these fields when they have no role models they don't have any professional networks they don't have you know parents or, parent, uh, or friends of their parents family friends who can uh, put them into a position where they can apply for an internship get an internship automatically no nepotism just hard work yeah there are people like that and you know it's great for them but uh, a friend of mine once said, you can't uh, black excellence your way out of racism. And that's on period. In the same way, you can't black, brown, minority excellence your way out of racism. So I I can work hard, but that's still me. I am not helping liberate anyone. I'm still, you know, I'm quite exceptional. But that's not making the lasting change. It's about creating these networks and support structures. Yeah. And Student-led ones are great because people can trust them. But also we've been seeing the firms with all of their uh, mentoring schemes, all of their social mobility work. And it's just been great at giving other people insights into it too. But I think at the moment it's still a little bit elite. It's still focused on people who are talented, self-starters, hard workers. Um, And I think we could just extend that a little bit further, maybe have career services coming into all schools in the country from a younger age. So people know that, you know, they're not limited to living in their hometown for their life or working uh, 
uh, a manual job if they don't want to. If they want that, that's perfectly fine. But people should not feel limited by their situation. People should know how to utilize their education and hard work effectively. They should know how to work smart rather than just work hard. Because I can dig all day, but if I'm not digging in the right direction, I'm not getting out of the metaphorical prison cell of a lower socioeconomic background. With that said, this is the end of episode five, Dreams and Nightmares. Another episode of us bringing knowledge to the streets. Thank you so much, Mars. Please follow Modern Renaissance Men Pod on all social media. So till next time, see ya. Hey, if you want to call me, you know,